Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by staff reporters Jack Harris, Max Madden, Mason Kearney, and as always, site publisher Chris Cartman. Guys, how you doing today? Bright and early. Good to see all you happy faces. Good to see you too, boss. Yeah, really happy to be here, guys. Yeah, doing great. Mason, how's your truck doing? Uh, that's not so hot. I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> All right, so we will not talk about Mason's truck. We'll talk about ASU Hoops, their weekend in Southern California. ASU defeated UCLA 84-73 to at Poly Pavilion. It was their first win in Poly Pavilion since James Harden played for ASU in 2009. Then a heartbreaking loss at the Galen Center to USC 69-67. to uh, Let's first talk about the UCLA game, guys. UCLA started the game on an 11-0 run. Uh, Dort was, had a very slow first half. ASU really, it took them a little while to get into that game, but once they got into that game a little bit, they out-rebounded UCLA by eight. Lugensdorf finished with 16 points on a pretty impressive 7 of 15 shooting after a, a 1 of 8 start. Zylan Cheatham had nine points but 20 rebounds and was a very important presence down low. And Remy Martin in the second half had, had eight assists. He finished with 15 points and 11 assists. Really solid game out of him. Daquan Lake with some important minutes, eight, eight points in 13 minutes. What did you guys see in that game? Uh, that was a, that was one of ASU's better offensive games of the season, I thought, especially just the way Remy Martin ran the point, obviously getting 11 assists. Um, but it was also just so evident how important rebounding was in that game. The, the way ASU, and especially Zylan Cheatham, rebounded in the second half was, was probably the biggest difference uh, from what was kind of a close game early on to the Sun Devils opening up a double-digit lead and being able to coast it in. And that's what we've talked about you know, all years when they're when they're moving the ball well offensively and they're not getting beat on the glass and they're closing down the three point line pretty well, which UCLA started well from three and then and then tailed off. Uh, ASU's tough to beat, especially in a Pac-12 where you know you have teams like UCLA that have a lot of talent. But it was pretty clear, you know, by about midway through that second half, that was just a team that wasn't didn't really have it in them to to make much of a run at a comeback. Um, so yeah, I mean those. And when you stack that kind of performance onto, you know, the, what they had done in the couple weeks prior, that was their fifth win in six games, which is the best six-game stretch Bobby Hurley has had uh, in the Pac-12 at ASU. Um, that was encouraging. The, I mean, the disappointment for ASU is that, like you said, they couldn't complete the weekend sweep right. when they didn't play quite as well at USC, especially on the offensive end, but still had a chance to win. Um, I think what was really important to note about this game was, uh, especially once the starters uh, weren't getting a lot of offensive production at the very beginning, like you said, Rob UCLA goes on an 11-0 run. Um, the bench was extremely important early on. Um, you had Kamani Lawrence coming in, made an impact. Tayshawn Cherry coming in, making an immediate impact. Um, and obviously Daquan Lake as well with those, with those early points to kind of uh, – stop that UCLA run and and give ASU some momentum the rebounding like Jack mentioned also extremely important I mean Zion Cheatham having 20 rebounds in the game extremely impressive for right. sure and I mean he he carried that over to USC as well I think he finished with like 14 rebounds in that in that game um so definitely a very good rebounding weekend for ASU um but yeah I thought the 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 bench minutes I th I think this game for ASU against UCLA was very reminiscent of the Colorado game in that the, the ball movement was definitely there, and that allowed them, especially in the second half, to kind of pull away, especially when Remy Martin finishes with 11 assists. I mean, that, that's when ASU was playing at their best. And you also look at defensively. ASU was able to really limit some of the best players on UCLA. Moses Brown, just three of six for six points, four rebounds on the game. That's a seven-footer that you're really limiting when ASU doesn't have uh, – a spot there to really guard a seven footer, and, and Daquan Lake did really well on he him. Did. When he, he did. He did. He did a very good job, um, and, and then just making it hard on guys like Prince Ali, who finished two of ten shooting. And they defended the three ball so well. UCLA was just about thirty percent from three. I I thought that ASU should be encouraged by how well they defended in that game as well. Yeah, definitely, Robin. I think another thing that we haven't touched on yet that, that is worth talking about is ACU's performance in the fast break. It was they had a, a twenty-one to eleven advantage. I think that there there were some uh, turnovers that facilitated that, but also as Jack mentioned, a lot of that has to do with Remy Martin. There was really uh, strong passing going the other way. Um, ASU, of course, is more athletic this year than they have been in years past, and being able to you know uh, you know beat a team going fast the other way like UCLA, which also has a lot of athletes made a big difference. And for all the other reasons that you guys mentioned, uh, you know, rebounding bench points, like Mason was talking about, 
and then overall balanced scoring. I mean, you have four guys put up at least 10 points, three guys that put up at least 15 in Lawrence Martin and Dort. So that's right. obviously something to be encouraged about. Um, but of course, I, I think that a lot of fans are going to be looking at this weekend uh, as kind of a disappointment after what happened uh, at UCLA. Yeah, coming into this game, we knew that UCLA was a bad rebounding team. They they, they gave up a lot of second chance opportunities. Uh, and uh, really didn't get a lot of, for how long that they are, they don't really get a lot of second-chance opportunities themselves. I think they had eight second-chance points in, in the game. Uh, I also really reflect on what Daquan Lake was able to do off the bench in the first half. I felt like he was a – the bench was, overall was good, but he in particular really helped to to reverse that – uh, bad 11-0 start, and that had been a, a trend for ASU on all these road Pac-12 games. Is really putting putting themselves in a hole to begin the game. Um, Zylan Cheat, I'm just he's a guy that just will not be denied at this point. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the missed free throw and everything that happened in the USC game in a second, but to get 20 rebounds and uh, it seemed like almost every. Uh, uh, defensive rebound in the second half, he would come from nowhere to like go and go up and grab the ball. He has a very impressive knack for for being able to read where the balls and be coming off the rim. And um, uh, against a team like uh, uh, that is equally athletic or maybe even more athletic to ASU with its length, uh, I thought that was instrumental. And, and and Remy Martin, that was the game where it seemed like. He took the next step at figuring out pacing and uh, distribution versus shot selection, f- especially for it being on the road. Uh, now, I was struck overall in this game being there by just how bad that, that things have gotten for UCLA basketball. Um, it and, almost seemed like they were uninterested in the second half of that game. Yeah, I mean, th- they got a little bit of a spark after... They, they, they fired Alfred on December 31st, and then they, they went to their zone defense, and uh, they caught the Oregon schools by surprise, I think. But then uh, – I'm pardon me, the Cal-Stanford by surprise. But then they went they, – they, they, they looked bad against the Oregon schools, and um, and they didn't look good. Of course, they, they had a really good game against Arizona, I guess. I didn't watch it because it, it a lot of it was when we were working uh, for the USC game. But uh, – I thought really at the beginning of the season that UCLA had some of the best talent in the league, and they really do. You look at uh, they they bring Jules Bernard and Cody Riley off the bench, and they they play them 10, 15 minutes sometimes, and those guys would be starting at a lot of places, uh, and yet um, it just doesn't translate. I think that I think it's a poorly coached team. It, it has been, and uh, and ASU is is uh, it's a pretty good matchup for ASU, I would say. And so ASU, you know, took advantage and, and got a win against a reeling UCLA team. And that's really important because uh, just how bad the Pac-12 is and, and, and what that shapes up to be as far as its NCAA prospects. But they, they weren't able to uh, complete that, that ultra-rare road sweep in L.A., which hasn't happened since 1987. Yeah, and two quick notes before we put a bow on this UCLA game. ASU has been one of the worst teams in the league in free throwing, but UCLA went just 10 of 21 from the line. Uh, ASU went 16 of 21, not a fantastic percentage, but that was one of the big differences in the game. Well, that's an important point also. UCLA going into that game was was last in the Pac-12 right. in free throw percentage at 61.1%. Uh, ASU fans have lamented the, the team's bad free throw shooting, um, but... In this game, on this trip, really, it was actually a lot better. Right. Uh, but UCLA, that's 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 been a problem all year. Yeah, and another note: Tayshawn Cherry was banged up and didn't return from the locker room the second half with a uh, what Bobby Hurley described as, as a head injury, concussion, as a concussion. Um, moving on to the USC game, though, as Chris said, it would have been the the team's first road sweep of the LA school since 1987. Would have been the first road sweep against a Pac-12 team on the road since 2010. Bobby Hurley hasn't seen one of those or hasn't coached one of those so far. Um, but against USC, ASU was great at the foul line, 22 of 25. The biggest miss of the night, though, might have been the difference in ASU winning and losing that ball game. We'll break down that in a second. I also want to talk to you guys and get your thoughts on Benny Boatwright's final shot with 11.8 seconds left and, and how the contest was. 
and kind of the last sequence of that game. But let's start with the the free throw by Zylan Cheatham, ASU up one point uh, with 24 seconds to go. And it's like Chris said, he's played so well for the team for the majority of the season, and he, he played great in that game. 14 rebounds, 11 points. It's tough to see that happen in that situation. Well, he's not a particularly good free throw shooter. At le- I mean, he, I think he was 70% at San Diego State, but he's been lower than that at ASU, and it's somewhere in the, I guess, low to mid-60s. But uh, it was his first trip to the free throw line. That, that's not a, really a good situation when you're going to the free throw line for the first time and it's the fr- it's a one and one and you just back ironed it you know he was um you know he had the he had the right uh line on it but just it was a little bit long um I, I don't, i'm the type of person very much who isn't that big on you know something like that being determinative and what happens in a, in a game where there's lots of other things that have gone on. I don't put like a micro, I think you have to, to, you know, evaluate the, the quality of what happens on the stretch. I, I look more so right. about what happened on the possession where they didn't take a timeout and Remy Martin gets a, a contested three point shot that wasn't a very good shot. And that was the possession after Boatwright made the go-ahead three. Mm-hmm. And, right. and then, um, you know, the, the the defensive sequence about what happened with Boatwright and how he got open and they had a really good play that they ran there. And then what happened in the end of the game um, when uh, ASU fouled 2.5 or 2.8 seconds left on the clock and they had a timeout left. And then on the long rebound, uh, they seemed to be – not all on the same page, and Dort hesitated before taking a timeout, which put them in a bad situation for the last possession with uh, 0.7 seconds, I think it was, on the clock. So, 0.8. 0.8, okay. So um, I just don't think that, that ASU played well and had very good you know, focus or purpose uh, in, those, in those end game situations. And that's, if you look at, if you look at it, that's sort of emblematic of their team and their program to me. Um, we've seen other situations like that. The one that stands out really vividly to me was at Washington last year with Mickey Mitchell under the basket and like just a really bad right. sequence. And they, it's not like in end game situations, we've seen them come up with some really great play concept design or something that gets an open shot that they then make. Now, I want to say at the same time that Bobby Hurley's he's he's battling some limitations of his team. There was only one mid-range shot that was made by ASU in the entire game. Every other field goal and and ASU made 19 out of 60 something shots in the game. It was like 19 of 61. That's that's like horrific, right? But every shot that they made was either a layup, a dunk, or a three-point shot. Mm-hmm. And they I think were one out of 13. Uh, when I counted up the shot chart on anything that was outside of three feet to the three-point line. And that was a Zylan Cheetah mid-range jumper, which these might make five of those in, on the season. So um, I, so there's limitations there, but at the same time, I think you have to come up with something better than they were able to come up with if you're Bobby Hurley and you say, we didn't take a timeout because we didn't let we didn't want their defense to get set. And that's a, philosophically, that's something that a lot of coaches believe in. Against the zone, I don't necessarily believe in that. Um, I think you can. I think that you should be able to have a, a play for zone and a play for man, depending on what they come out of. And there was 14 seconds or something like that on the clock, so there was plenty of time that you should be able to, you know, figure out what you're doing and make it happen. But Hurley, we've seen this this year and with his teams, they're very free form on offense, and he lets them kind of operate. Uh, I just think there's it, there's a lot of opportunities to second guess the way that that whole thing went down. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, I mean, I when I was watching it, I was thinking you have two timeouts, you got to use one here, um, and especially like once Remy Martin throws the ball up to Rob Edwards, and there's just obviously nothing going on. Like if you want to see if you can get out in the break and maybe get to the hoop, fine. But the minute Rob Edwards gets it and is like looking to pass back to Remy Martin, that's when you need to know this, this isn't going to work uh, because then it's easy. Like USC brings a double to him. They took away the passing lanes, and he had to let go of this like shot that he's fallen down. It's just not going to go in. Uh, but it's not even the last seconds of the game where ASU can struggle down the stretch. Like The last made field goal they had the entire night 
was that three-pointer Remy Martin hit with 3.42 to go. Their possessions after that, a missed three-pointer where they got – Romello White got the offensive rebound and they missed a three-pointer again. Um, you had Lugan Stort turning the, the ball over, um, and then he came back and hit some free throws, but then you have the missed one from Cheatham. Like that game after Martin hit that three, the next minute or two are where you need to get a stop. You need to go get an, an, another easy bucket, and instead – they couldn't stop USC. I think there was a foul on Rakosevich, and then they didn't get to the hoop. They were they put up a couple tough threes. Um, those late game sequences are something like you mentioned, Chris, going back to last year, where they have the ability to be in these games late, but they just have not shown the ability to close them out. Um, and that's been the the probably the the number one thing that has that has kept them from really kind of taking that next step, winning more of these Pac-12 games, being more than just a bubble team. Um, and it's hard to see where that's going to change when it's the same cast of characters making the same mistakes, you know, most nights. I think it's also interesting to point out, I mean, I think to go off what Jack said, it's it's kind of just a sign of a young team still who, who doesn't really know how to close out games. I mean, if we look back to, to the Nevada game and that loss, um, Nevada has so much experience, they were able to kind of come back and, and close out a game where they were down by, I think it was like 14 at the half. And ASU, just in in these late stretches, they, they're not making the right plays. Remy Martin against UCLA was had 11 assists, was finding the right passing lanes, made the right decisions, and then they come to this important second game to get the sweep, and, and just yeah. those decisions are not being made in the final stretches of closer closer games um also i think it was jonah matthews who who missed the last free throw for usc he did they dort gets the rebound and and they don't take the time out right away they he starts running up the floor with this so they don't get it past half court like and I if don't you take a timeout before he if he, before he dribbles the ball you advance the ball to exactly to, so, so i feel like it's just once again a sign of immature uh, maybe not quite knowing what to do in those late game situations the fact that i mean he starts running up the court with it i, I just don't know where this team was at so Bobby Hurley said after the game that their their plan going into that because there was, had been a timeout before was to get a a outlet to Dort and then he was going to take a dribble or two and then get a shot off. Which okay? which even if that was the plan, Zylan Cheatham was caught was signaling for a timeout so like right away. So so, so I, yeah, that whole sequence was. So, but but here's the thing, the it was a it was a long rebound, semi long rebound to Dort. I think that that maybe messed up their plan because he was supposed to be the guy that got the outlet as opposed to the guy that got the rebound. I don't know. But what you can clearly say is that they didn't have their contingencies covered. They didn't have all bases covered about, and they certainly were not all on the same page about what they were supposed to do. You can't, you can't go onto the court and not have everybody 100% on the same page with 2.8 seconds left. It cost them two of the seconds. Yeah, two seconds. You, it, that's and about, you started. Well, it probably didn't cost them two seconds. It, it 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 takes maybe a half a second to three quarters of a second to call the timeout and get that signaled. So it might have been 1.5 or something like that. 1.8, 2.0, somewhere in there. But it cost them a second, I would mm-hmm. say probably. And that second is what gives you a, the ability to make a dribble, to make a move, to get a shot off, and that that's that's a big difference. Mason, I agree um, somewhat with with what you were mentioning about possible immaturity with the team, but at the same time, this was a a pretty excuse me a senior laden team last year uh, with guys like Trey Holder and Shannon Evans, and and both of those guys with plenty of experience, and still the same issues in terms of late game problems. We we saw this a lot last year, as as Chris mentioned. I think the most notable time was at the uh, during the Washington game when Mickey Mitchell drove down the baseline and didn't have anywhere to go with the ball. Uh, this is something that I also think Jack made a really good point is, is that has to be figured out by Bobby Hurley and, and his staff and his his uh, you know veteran leadership on that team before you can actually make that next step as a program. And this was a huge opportunity for ASU to uh, move. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, the net ratings and, and Ken Palm, but to even make a a little bit more of a jump in those ratings, which are really important come uh, decision time uh, when, when teams on the bubble are <clears throat> going to learn if they're going to go in or not. But Could have been a big deal. Right. I, I think it could have been a big deal, and that's something that, as we've all talked about, has, has been a problem for ASU. These late-game situations, you 
can you can count on you know both hands the times in the last this season and at the end of the last season where they're just complete breakdown at the end of the game. So, uh, you know, if ASU wants to make that makes that next step, it has to be improved. Yeah, you know, the thing is, on one hand, the point that you make is 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 valid, Mason. But on the other hand, most of the best teams in the country are really talented but also young because the most talented players are not in college for four years so you know so you have yeah you're going to have some Zylan Cheatham's out there and, and maybe teams have two or three guys who are like that but you know you look at the best teams and we can go through them all but they have these really dynamic young players and that they are heavily rely upon and I just think that it's uh we don't know if Dort's going to be around next year. Right. You know, that could go either way. But you only get so many chances. And let's say you lose Cheat, you're going to lose Cheatham. Let's say you lose Dort. Well, then next year, you're what are you? You're, maybe you're a little bit older in some ways, but you still have other young guys you have to rely on. Maybe you're not as talented in some respects. I don't know. Uh, you know, we're by this point in the season, at the end of January, and Remy Martin's been, you know, he's played a, you know, a lot of minutes. Uh, you got you got to be able to get better execution, but I don't know that this is an execution team. That's what we something that we've thematically kept going back to time and time again is that um, you know th- this isn't a team that seems to be methodical or a really high functioning type execution team. And to be fair, they they did win a close game against Kansas. Um, you know they did pull out the the Georgia game after coming back, but especially like in the Pac-12 when you when you know you're going to be in close games, if you can't win these games against teams that ASU is as good or better than, that's where you're really going to start missing out on opportunities to kind of maximize all the talent you have on the roster. Okay, and there's a few other notes before we before we finish up talking about this weekend. Dort shot a combined one of 12 from three this weekend. He did improve from the free throw line this weekend, making two big free throws actually to put ASU up over USC in, in the final stretch of that game, but... His shooting has really struggled. He was two of thirteen against USC. How is how is that hindering the team, Chris? Well, that's major. He's your leading scorer. He's the guy that they relied upon to do a lot of the heavy lifting uh, with the ball in his hands and get into the basket and get into the free throw line uh, in the non-conference and even into the the first initial Pac-12 games. Um, but just as much as his cold shooting from the perimeter. He's missed a lot of shots around the basket. There's just too many shots. Uh, it really mitigates your ability to put the ball on the floor and get to the hole if you're not able to to finish on those more um, or draw the help defender that allows the second more second-chance opportunities, which they haven't had quite as many of against some of these more athletic teams. Um, I think he's a little bit in a funk. I think, I think he's a... Yeah. I think that he's kind of there's a narrow sort of ability that he has, which is he's he's great at bullying his way to the basket and getting a shot up on the rim, but there's nothing else that you could really say that he's particularly good at. He's not a he's a very average three point shooter. Um, he's had a lot of really ugly misses um, from long range um, in recent weeks and. You know, he's on a pull-up mid-range guy, and he doesn't really play especially well without the ball in his hands on offense. So if he's not on, it, it almost is like he can be a liability. I hate to say that, but he, yeah. it's almost like he can be a liability on the offensive end. He had 10 turnovers over the weekend. Yeah, you, you, I mean, that's, it's bad. It's, not, it's, it's, it's poor efficiency overall. Yeah, it, the turnovers are bad. And another thing, and this was something, um, I forget which game it was, uh, but – the, the, one of the color commentators on the broadcast points out, and I think it was a good point, um, guys aren't afraid to foul him when he goes to the hoop because they know he's a bad free throw shooter, and they know, like if you watch him on film, he doesn't really, he tries to avoid contact. He doesn't take contact on his way up. So a lot of these, you see him trying these like reverse layups and, and crazy like movements around the rim because he's trying to avoid contact, but that's not <laughs> going to be a consistent way to, to finish from that close in. And then when he does go to the line, he struggles. So... Some things that worked early in the season when he was like shooting 40% from three and against some lesser teams was was able to physically dominate inside have gone away, and he hasn't found another part of his game to rely on. Well, So I think those are really good points. And just from a scouting standpoint, he doesn't have very good body control around the basket. 
the guys that are great finishers, they have this great poise through contact or they, you know, Dort's shooting 40% from the field now and 29% from three and 63% from the free throw line. That's not good for a guy that's, that is, has taken 60 more shots than anybody else on your team. You got to have somebody that's taken that many shots you got to be you. You got to have a higher effective field goal rate than that guy has for the caliber of the shots that he gets. Because let's face it, he he'll take contested threes, no problem. Too many, obviously, but a lot of his shots are either open shots from the perimeter or they're shots that are within two or three feet of the basket that that he misses. Yeah. So. I think that's hurting a team that is not a very good shooting team, you know, overall. But if you look at it, um, I'm not sure, like, Remy Martin's field goal percentage is is no better. Uh, Kamani Lawrence's field goal percentage is no better. Rob Edwards' field goal percentage is no better. So, again, like, we're being a little bit critical, but Bobby Hurley is limited in what he actually probably can do because he doesn't have guys that – are shooters that you can really rely on. Right. I think it's also important just to note that, I mean, I would say Dort is a, probably a plus defender. Um, and and the way that this team kind of bases their mindset on defense, I mean, that's helped. But to go back to your point, Rob, the 10 turnovers, I mean, that truly is a liability on the offensive end when, you, when you're consistently turning the ball over. And I think against USC, there was like eight turnovers coming out into the second half. That can't happen if you want to, to win in, in the Pac-12. It can't. So I, that's just something I feel like that, that should be mentioned with this team. That was when the game got away from them. You know, we'll just move on here. But they only had five turnovers in the first half, Mason. And then they had eight in the first eight minutes. Mm-hmm. And that was Dort and Martin, uh, primarily. I think I think they each had two, or at least I know that Martin had two. Uh, Dort has more turnovers and assists this season. Yeah. And for being a plus defender, he has 26 steals in 19 games. It's really not that many. Um, you know, he's, he's okay. But... Um, yeah, just decision making with the ball. It, it and and their their transition defense will be very good for stretches, and then they'll give up some right. some opportunities. It's just they they still don't have that extra consistency level that differentiates you from your peers. Right. Um, we'll move on to the territorial cup. That's going to be this Thursday, the thirty first of January on ESPN two. That's going to be at seven p.m. local time. The great Bill Walton will be on that broadcast. Uh, U of A got demolished by both LA schools this weekend, lost by 23 at the Galen Center to USC and uh, by 21 to UCLA. Without Chase Jeter in both games. Yes, that is that is an important note. Um, U of A is 14-7, and 5-3 and three in the league. Bobby Hurley is 0 of 6 against U of A. This may be his best opportunity to beat the Wildcats, but this series has been incredibly one-sided in its history. Jack, what more can you tell us about that? I mean, if you go back and look at from when the Pac-12 expanded to 12 teams in the the 2011-12 season, none of the um, rivalries among traveling partners uh, has been more one-sided than this. Uh, U of A is 11-3 in that time. Arizona's won the last six. There's no series streak of any of those other rivalries that is more than three, and that's Washington winning three straight. And so in a conference, and I think that stood out to me when I – researched all this yesterday in a conference that over the last 10 years has been pretty fluid with teams that are good and not good and has had a lot of parity. This has been the one rivalry where one team has been consistently dominant and and the other has been just consistently second class, which makes this year and this matchup especially very interesting because you go into it, Arizona State's probably going to be the favorite at home. You probably even expect them to to maybe win, just given the results and the way the two teams played last week and have played the whole season. So last year was obviously a really big chance for for ASU when they went to Tucson and both teams were top 10 or top 15 or whatever they were ranked. Um, But just in terms of, you know, ASU having a chance to to maybe move ahead of Arizona this year, this this is a huge opportunity. This is the thing that people need to understand. ASU is never going to have a perfect situation, but this is about as good as it gets. Yeah, to, uh, seriously. To 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 make a make a mark in the league, you have 
UCLA fires its coach and is down. USC has injuries, is very shallow and not a very coach team. Arizona just went through about a two-year period where the recruiting dropped off a map and they had to rely upon all these guys. Well, if you look at what's happening next year, USC and Arizona have the two best-rated recruiting classes maybe in the country, okay? They're going to be reloading like crazy next year. And they have other guys that are going to be coming back, of course. USC is an older team, but still, right? ASU needs to take advantage of its opportunities. Arizona's not really playing all that great right now. It had a good start to the league. ASU and Arizona, according to Ken Palm, had two of the easiest starts to the conference play in strength of schedule, which is an important note. But when you're playing this game in your own building, you have to win. Yeah, you, you have to win this game if you're ASU. You, you have to stay ahead of the curve. We've already talked about it in the past. 11-7 is the minimum Pac-12 record for ASU to be not on the bubble. It might take 12-6 and six to be off the bubble at the end of the day. And you're not probably getting there if you're losing at USC, when you, a game that you probably should have won, and then if, you don't, if you're not able to win this game at home uh, against Arizona. And this isn't a very good shooting team. Arizona, they shoot just 43% from the field, 33% from three. They are a pretty good defensive team, particularly good against defending the three, uh, where they're allowing just about 31% uh, from deep. But this isn't a team that's going to come at you with a lot of firepower. No, I mean, if you watch Arizona play this year, it's pretty shocking just how much less skill there is yeah. uh, on the floor. I mean, you think about Arizona teams of the past, I mean, even going back to last year with guys like Raleigh Alkins and um, uh, Alonzo Trier and, uh, yeah, obviously Aiton, um, and Ristic. But, I mean, this team, Brandon Randolph, pretty naturally gifted athlete, good scorer. And outside of that, you know, you have a lot kind of, of trans- Brandon Williams. You have a lot of transfer guys on this team. Um, and, and without Chase Jeter, who isn't a dominant scorer, but is, is as good of a rim protector as they had, He's averaging, yeah, he's averaging 12.6 points yeah. and 7.9 rebounds a game. Uh-huh. A 6'8 former Duke player, without him on the floor, you saw how much they struggled inside against USC and UCLA, two yeah. teams that have pretty good front courts. And that's an area I think ASU's, it's going to be a challenge for their guards to go up against U of A's perimeter defense. Sean Miller coaches them really well. Um, they're good defensive players, but I think inside ASU might have a bit of an advantage. And, and that's a good point because, I mean, like Rob said, because U of A is such a good defensive team on the perimeter, ASU's game plan should not be to focus on that because they're already not a good shooting team, and we've talked about this. So if Zylan Cheatham and, and Daquan Lake, Romello White can, can make an impact inside, get the ball, if ASU can get the ball to their three most uh, highly efficient scorers early and often, and consistently throughout the game and not not stray away from that game plan. I do agree with Jack. I think they can take advantage of of that inside front court play and, and potentially get this this victory that they really need. Yeah, this is this is a huge opportunity for ASU to like like Chris mentioned for everything that you mentioned, all the recruiting classes coming in the Pac twelve, but also a huge opportunity for ASU, you know, to finally beat Arizona, uh, especially at home. Arizona doesn't have a lot of that top end star talent, especially when Chase Jeter's injured. Uh, outside of Brandon Randolph, as we we're talking about, and maybe Brandon Williams at, at times, there's not a lot of scoring on this team. Yeah, Arizona's pretty good uh, perimeter perimeter defense, which which does uh, you know make it more difficult for ASU, given that it's already not a very good shooting team. But as long as ASU can can continue to out rebound teams and and hopefully you know uh, for the Sun Devils get get some better looks instead of just relying upon uh, you know Door driving to the rim or Cheatham trying to hit a uh, a mid-range jumper or maybe Remy Martin hitting threes. But at, like we've all mentioned before, this is a huge game for ASU. If they can actually win, they can separate themselves a little bit and give uh, a little bit of breathing room when it comes to bubble time and also separate themselves from one of the teams in Arizona who still has a very good chance to win the league. So Sean Miller, they, 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 their defensive identity is very consistent. They run this pack line defense, and um, they're very good at forcing teams to take a lot of threes, but then also defending the three at a very high level. That's that's like their strength. Uh, and we know ASU is not a good shooting team on any kind of mid-range shots, but 
I, I think that in this game, it may be tougher for ASU to get to the basket via the dribble drive because of the style that Arizona has. They, they, they tend to be able to wall off that, that kind of stuff. So I think the, the, I think one of the things that we'll have to watch for very early is whether ASU becomes a perimeter passing three-man weave type of a team that isn't able to really work the ball from the inside out. I think the key to beating Arizona is getting the ball inside to out or inside to good shot selection. And then uh, when Arizona, this isn't a a potent Arizona offensive team as we've talked about, of course, but uh, for as long as I've been watching ASU U of A games, which is a lot, a lot of years now, uh, there's these massive runs that Arizona will go on and that ASU has also been very susceptible to. And so if ASU can prevent any sort of a... Usually right at the beginning of games. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, now. But, um, I, I mean, just it, ASU has to prevent anything that resembles like a double-digit type of a run in the game. I think I think if, if we're seeing ball movement in and out, in to out, and we're, we're seeing... ASU's transition defense be good and not giving up these big runs. And those are very big keys for ASU. Real quick, I mean, all that, this game more than maybe any ASU's played is going to come down to how well Remy Martin can run the point and make the right decisions and get the ball inside. Um, Last weekend was a good step forward, but this is going to be, I think, a really good test to see where he is in terms of his development as a point guard. From the hardwood to the grass we go in ASU spring practice. The, uh, we're going to preview that a little bit. Spring practices begin on Tuesday, February 5th. We have media day, though, this Thursday as we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, January 29th. Chris published a really great comprehensive preview of ASU's offense going into the spring, going position by position, breaking down depth, uh, the amount of scholarships on the unit. And as spring football draws near, that's a really good thing to check out to just kind of understand where the unit's at overall. There's going to be a defensive one that will be published today as well. So we're going to have a lot of those breakdowns on the site. Um, So be sure to check out those premium articles. Um, And Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about the the content that's coming to the site right now? So there's so many things that we talk about on our free podcast and in our free content uh, that is 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 just doesn't go to the depth that we that we do with our premium stuff. So, um, a lot, people will probably notice that there's been a lot of um, in in the last year and a half or so. There's been a lot of attrition from the roster, right? So, what does that what does that do to ASU's overall 85 scholarship limit? And what are the 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 inhibitors to being able to replenish that fully? And what does that mean? for ASU and those are some of the things that we track on a year-over-year basis and then and then going beyond that we talk about what where ASU should be at from a scholarship health standpoint on trash going into any season uh, at every single position group how many linemen you should have on your team and how many defensive backs and this the the uh, the spacing of that on your roster and and what that tells you about Uh, the prospects for the team, not just in any one year period, but, but more over a longer term. So, so we have all of this stuff broken down by class and position and where they're on their, on their number and where that they have a short, uh, a short, you know, shortcoming from, from a number standpoint. And um, it allows you to really get a good perspective on the development the planning, the preparation, where they're where they're doing a good job, where maybe there are some gaps, uh, what position groups need to be recruited really heavily in the next year, and why, and what some of the limitations are going to be. Um, I just think that if you really want to understand these things at uh, a programmatic type of a level, uh, this is the place for you to, to, to do that. And so right now we're going to go position by position, just giving you uh, a note or something that we're looking out for in the spring from each position group. We'll start with quarterback. Jack, let's start with you. It's competition, man. Um, I, I think I, I think the biggest thing, I really doubt they're going to settle on a starter this spring. Um, I think more to look out for is are there do they narrow the competition and or how many guys aren't in it going into fall camp. The number one thing I'm going to be looking at, I think, is Dylan Sterling Cole's progression. I think, obviously, a lot of ASU fans are excited about guys like Jaden Daniels, but uh, we've heard a lot of good things about uh, Sterling Cole, and it'll be exciting to see if he's uh, really taking a big step. 
I'm looking mainly probably at the freshmen, the three freshmen coming in, seeing how they push each other and how they adapt to from, from high school football to, to the, the college level and all the preparation it takes to compete at the, at the Pac-12 level. Yeah, I don't think that we're going to see some huge difference in Dylan Sterling Cole in, in the spring, not in the outset of the spring. So quarterback is an X-factor position. Who has that dynamic sort of thing that captures you and uh, has the ability to command what you're doing offensively. That's hard for a freshman. Does anybody have that or look like they are going to be able to be that uh, in the next six months? I'm curious to see from the three starting quarter or from the three freshman quarterbacks, excuse me, what separates them, how much of a difference in, in skill and talent is there and, and how is their ability to run the offense in the spring? I'll be curious to see that. But we'll move into running back now, where you know Benjamin has obviously a stronghold there and is the starting running back after Think having so? <laughs> a great season last year. Uh, but there's some talent behind him as well. Yeah, I, I want to see uh, if AJ Carter looks anything more like every down back, um, because you know if Ener Benjamin leaves at the end of next season, um, he could. I mean, Carter's a guy who could have a chance to become the next starter there. Or if not, you know, ASU's going to need to kind of find out what his future is pretty quick. Yep, I agree with Jack on that one, and also maybe keeping an eye on Eno Benjamin's uh, pass-blocking ability. Uh, at, at times last season, he struggled a little bit early on, but I think progressed pretty well. Um, I'm interested to see how Isaiah Floyd and Paul Lucas kind of fit into this picture, if they're going to be more special teams options or if they're going to continue to kind of uh, get some reps during the season. Just building off of that, uh, Isaiah Floyd, even though he was a junior college guy, he was a sophomore um, didn't have he he looked you know physically really cut up but he's a smaller undersized guy is he going to be able to put on enough size to become a possible every down guy at this level or not uh Herm Edwards loved him last year but then it's sort of his reps really fell off uh AJ Carter does he have the quick twitch and dynamic capability to be able to be an every down guy or do they have basically uh below Eno Benjamin, a bunch of role players that you're going to have to substitute and then find somebody that's that's really dynamic in 2020 to come in. I think with as much work as Benjamin had last year, I think the spring is going to be a big opportunity for guys to kind of take some wear off of him and, and see what they can do. So I'll be curious to see uh, how much rest he gets this spring. And wide receiver, obviously without Nikhil Harry, a huge loss. Jack wrote a good article on our site uh, kind of about the wide receiver position group and, and, and what the loss does compared to some of the past wide receiver cores of ASU. Um, what, what's one thing you're looking out for specifically, though, Jack? Uh, Kyle Williams, is he utilized any differently? Is he targeted more in the passing game? I think he's the one guy who you could look and see their production jumping a lot next season for sure. I'm going to keep an eye on Brandon Ayuk's uh, usage. I think that he really started to come on at the end of the last season especially in that bowl game, and uh, we'll see if, if they try to use him as a, more of a boundary-type guy or maybe a deep-threat guy or just sort of an all-around weapon. Um, I'm going to probably be focusing a lot on John Humphrey, see how he is, is doing after missing last season with the Achilles injury, um, see his progression, and also Frank Darby, um, how they use him, if he's going to continue to be just a, a long ball threat or if they're going to try and use him in, in different ways. So there's a very clear top seven guys here. That's all the scholarship players they really will have. And then they'll get Jordan Curley and, and Ricky Persall in, um, and, uh, in the summer. But it's our questions about this team are pretty significant at wide receiver, given how old that they are and how much experience that they actually have. Uh, you have five seniors, and yet it's okay some of these guys, they're more very limited in terms of what they've been able to demonstrate from a skill standpoint. And we, we need to see if they're going to be able to broaden out uh, their overall capability in a way that really takes a lot uh, more pressure off of whoever the quarterback's going to be. Brandon Ayuk is really my thing that I'll be looking out for in the spring. He set some very lofty goals uh, after the season ended, and I'm just going to be curious to see, you know, is he improving as a route runner? Is he improving at at being able to practice hard each day? And are we going to see the little things from him that are going to make the coaches believe that he can even handle, like, the opportunity to do something yeah, like he's saying? I don't think we talked about it, but he tweeted out, like, 
what looked like his what yeah. I, what he wants to be his stat line is like fifteen hundred yards or something. It's and each of the numbers goal. each of the numbers was more than Nikhil Harry had in a single season at ASU. He, he thought he could do the you know Benjamin thing, and, and, it's <laughs> and I think he maybe went a little bit I'm too a, far. Injo, you know, Benjamin surpassed his. But we'll move on to tight end. But that's uh, Eno Benjamin. That that is uh, tight end uh, a position. Not utilized much in the passing game last year, but very important in in the blocking for Eno Benjamin. What's one of your keys there, guys? Um, Jared Buback, I guess, would be the big one because you lose Nick Ralston, who was kind of that utility second H-back. Um, does does Buback come in and do more? Um, I mean, and looking forward, I'm excited to see what Nolan Matthews does, but he won't be here in the spring. So just kind of how they replace what Ralston brought to the table. Will this finally be the season in which ASU is using tight ends uh, more effectively and more often in the passing game? I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> but that's something I'll be watching for in the spring. Um, I'm looking forward to see what Curtis Hodges does, especially in as, as more of a red zone threat, um, and see, see where they kind of use him in, in their system. I think Curtis Hodges has an opportunity here that uh, he needs to maximize because they, they are looking for – a versatile move weapon that you can flex out and use in the red zone. And I mean, from a physical standpoint, he has it if he wants to add more size and, and really hone right. in. Um, and then I really think that Mark Walton, um, another big guy has a lot of potential for a big guy. He actually bends and moves relatively well. I thought that he had a chance to, uh, frankly improve more in the last year than he did. And, um, so we'll see if he's able to to take the ne- that next step this year. And like Jack said, you're not going to get to see Nolan Matthews until until the summer and then the fall. So so it's a little too early to see what's going to happen from him. But I am curious, uh, as as Matt as Mason and Chris said, just to see what Curtis Hodges is like in in the spring. He's been very underwhelming in his ASU career when he's got some fantastic size to work with. Um, I don't know what you think, Chris, but how how much longer does he have if he doesn't start making an impact? This is the year that he has to do something. You know, if either you prove that you're reliable now, or they probably move on to somebody else. Now, obviously, it it kind of depends right. on Nolan Matthews or somebody else stepping up. Also, because if you don't have anybody else step up, then <laughs> it's it's still out there for right, you. But right. but but no, th- I think this year he has to really he's make been, that next step. He's been the most guy under development working on it for a couple of years now. And I think that, that his time is like, as Chris is saying, is getting closer to being up. But we'll move to the offensive line. One of the strongest units, it looks like, heading into the 2019 season, headlined by Cole Cabral. Uh, Jack, what's one of your takeaways about this group? Uh, what are they going to do with the right tackle spot? Uh, looks like maybe Stephen Miller could bounce out there and Roy Hemsley take over at right guard. Um, but Quinn Bailey was so good at that spot the last couple of years. Uh, how they replace him, kind of what they plan to do, is what I'm going to keep an eye on. Uh, just going to keep an eye on how well ASU's offensive line can pass protect. It's going to have to be as good as it was last season, maybe even better given uh, the fact that you're going to be playing a quarterback that doesn't have a lot of experience. Um, I'll probably be honing in more specifically on Ralph Frias. He was Offensive Scout Team Player of the Year. Um, so where ASU puts him, where he is on the depth chart, and, and what kind of impact uh, he makes after, obviously, redshirting last year. So they have six seniors. Uh, Kate Cody would be, like, the sixth guy who's a jack-of-all-trades and, you know, move around a little bit. Do they decide to elevate him in some way over Roy Hemsley? Uh, do they decide to play somebody else at, at right tackle? Do they, decide, do they decide to move up Frias to left tackle as the only non-senior and kick Robertson over to right tackle and move Pat Miller inside at guard? There's a few different things that could happen. Most likely thing is that uh, that they go with the five most obvious seniors uh, to start. But the development of these young players is really, really crucial. Not just Frias, but also what happens with Jared Bell and uh, Spencer Lovell. Okay, so I have two keys. One, Cole Cabral in his second year at center. I think it's funny that he did so well, and it was almost overshadowed that it was his first season at center last year in his junior year. I'm going to be curious to see if he can improve a little bit in snaps and just continue his overall progression that's been really, really impressive since he got to ASU. And then the consistency out of Zach Robertson and Steve Miller, I'm going to be very interested to see if those guys can show that they can be a big presence 
uh, and really help ASU consistently going forward. But we'll switch now to defense, the defensive line. Jack, what's your key there? Uh, I'm just kind of interested to see how much better Jermaine Lole can get. We saw it in flashes last year um, once he started playing more near the end of the season. He's such a perfect fit for what they want to do up front defensively. Um, and I think he could become a guy who could really be you know, somewhat of a, of a sack machine coming off the edge and then doing some of the stunts and other things that they do up front. I'm keeping a close eye on George Lee. I think that he is just so sound in his footwork and and with his hands, and I think he has a real chance to make an impact given uh, you know the, the current personnel on ASU's defensive line. Um, I'll be pretty interested to see how just the unit as a whole responds to Jamar Kane as their position coach now that Sean New is gone, and uh, what kind of impact he makes on the unit as a whole. Great point, Mason. They've had a different defensive line coach every year for seemingly a century now. Um, but Five years. Yeah. So is, is is Kane going to be able to round out the development of some of these guys or get them in a different mindset like a Darius Slade or a Jalen Bates that seemed to be more pass-oriented as opposed to, to full service? Um, what happens with Jermaine Lole, you know, a, a, a year into the program? Michael Matus. Uh, Nami Tuitu was a very good walk-on. I'd like to see what, kind of what happens with him. Um, and DJ Davidson got hurt against Arizona and probably won't be around. But I'm more so focused on the coaching interaction, skill development, how young players come along. I'm curious to see how ASU is able to generate pressure on the quarterback position in, in the spring, specifically w- with Jalen Bates and Chen Foreman, two guys that have just – been, we've been talking about the potential that they've had, but they really haven't shown a lot of success and, and a lot of ability to, to really make it difficult on opposing quarterbacks. I'll be curious to see what kind of progression they take in the spring. Uh, we'll move to the linebacker group, a group very young with Marlon Robertson and Darian Butler. Jack, what's one of your thoughts with that group? Uh, Tyler Johnson. We talked a lot about the steps he took last year, but remember, he didn't start the bowl game, so he was still hit or miss sometimes, especially with the, with the coaching staff as he – the clear-cut number one guy at that other outside linebacker spot opposite of Merlin Robertson, or, you know, does a guy like Kyle Soley or Reggie Hughes kind of push him for reps there? Yeah, Jack, I agree with you. That's the thing I'll be looking for in addition to just, you know, just how much better can Merlin Robertson be and Darian Butler be uh, this next season. But I think the most important thing to watch is definitely the Tyler Johnson situation. Um, I'll be pretty excited to see how Danny Gonzalez uses these these young guys in, in spring ball considering he said how excited he was to get them into his system because um, they weren't there last spring. Um, so seeing what Danny Gonzalez does to push these young kids who, who performed at a pretty high level for ASU last year. whole lot of perfect tens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I just – I'm always fascinated by what happens to guys physically after their first full winter in the strength conditioning program. Now the difference this year, of course, is that spring ball is so much earlier that you, that that's still going to be a lot of a work in progress. Uh, when you start in mid March and you, and you, you had two months before that to really uh, work on your body, it, I think it's a little bit different. So I, I think echoing what Mason said, a lot of this is going to be what happens in terms of how their leadership uh, takes shape tangibly and intangibly. I'm going to be curious to see how uh, Robertson and Butler maybe take control of this defense uh, as second-year players and and show more leadership uh, on what's going to be a pretty young defense. Now we'll move to the Tillman spot without Jalen Harvey. What do you guys predict, or or what's one of your thoughts with that position? This is a big chance for Evan Fields because Tyler Wiley is either not going to be back or he's going to be still limited by injury coming back uh, for the spring you know, Fields had a chance last spring. He was the first teamer the, the whole session. Um, didn't hold on to it, got passed by Wiley, and then eventually Jalen Harvey. Um, you know, he has the, the tools, it seems like, to play there, um, but he's got to show more mental prog- progression at that spot uh, next month if he's going to actually be the first teamer. Yeah, you know, I think it's pretty unfair that Jack gets to go first for each round because that's exactly what I was going to go with. Uh, Evan Fields, huge chance for him. I think we saw it when he first arrived on campus. He has the the frame and, and the athleticism to get it done but the challenge for him has been uh you know getting enough time and acclimating uh mentally to playing the tailman position so huge spot for him especially if tyler wiley uh is not fully healthy yeah i think it's gonna be really interesting i think this position group is pretty wide open right now um 
obviously waiting on Wiley if he gets a sixth season of eligibility. But um, I think this is a pretty big opportunity for, for Connor Soli, the true freshman, to come in and, and maybe get some reps in um, early. Um, so, so I'll be interested to see what kind of progression he makes. You'll probably have to wait for Connor Soli for the fall because he's not going to be around in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, Mason. You're getting a little ahead of yourself. Uh, uh, no, but I think um, it obviously – with Tyler Wiley, you know, out and, you know, we saw him found out about the six year, but I think he's going to get that soon. But, uh, it's Eli Doyle and, and Evan Fields are the only scholarship (laughs) guys that we, you know, know will be there unless they decide that they want to try to move one of the Ranger safeties. Right. We've heard some hinting about some possibilities of that. I just don't think that it's going to happen in the spring. I think they're going to wait and see what all their pieces look like before they decide to do that. So even if they do, it'll probably be like later on. So Evan Fields has so much talent, and he's the thing that I'm going to be watching for in the spring because I've been very high on him before, and as Chris has mentioned and reported on, he just hasn't always been consistent and and reached anything close to what we thought that he was capable of. But I think this is, like Jack and Max mentioned, a very good opportunity for him. We're going to start with Max on this last one because he's right. It's unfair that Jack gets them all. So defensive backs, a group, uh, you know, the corners and the safeties uh, with Chase Lucas, Kobe Williams, two guys that have been pretty pretty good for their ASU career so far. But Chase Lucas seemed like he might have taken a step back last year. Yeah, I was so excited to, to go first. I almost dropped the microphone, Rob. But... <laughs> Uh, I, well, like you mentioned, I was going to talk about Chase Lucas. It's definitely the guy that we'd be watching. Uh, I think that at times, you know, he wouldn't be playing and we'd see Taron Adams out on the field and he'd take a step back against certain wide receivers. And, and so I, I want to see if he can bounce back to as good as he was freshman year uh, and, you know, maybe improve his NFL draft stock or something like that. But it's going to be really important to have that, that uh, front line lockdown corner that ASU had his freshman year. Um, I'll be interested to see how Tamarcus Davis pushes uh, both Kobe Williams and Chase Lucas, um, considering he was defensive scout team player of the year last year, um, someone who a lot, of, a lot of fans probably hadn't heard of um, until that kind of award was announced. So I'll be interested to see if he can possibly have a chance at starting, but, but more so, I guess, how he pushes both Williams and Lucas. Uh, um, what do they do trying to replace Jalen Harvey at Boundary Ranger? Um, maybe... It's the Markham Twins when the season begins, one of them. But right now, you have Cam Phillips, who was good for the most part when he played last year, then ended the season getting hurt. Um, This is a big chance for him to kind of get a head start on what I think is probably going to be the the, the biggest competition uh, in the secondary outside of the Tillman Tillman safety spot. I would say more than anywhere else on the roster, this is the position group where it's – put up or shut up time for some of these guys. And you can even put Chase Lucas into that category if Tamarcus Davis or Taron Adams or Dom Harrison step up. But for a Taron Adams, you better start, you know, showing it. If you you got the talent, but it's got to be demonstrated. Langston Frederick, I think that you're a pretty good athlete. Um, you know, do you want to you know, make it so that it's hard for – Kiwan Markham to come in and, and knock you out. Uh, Cam Phillips. I mean, you got a lot of talent. You're you're going into only your second year, so you got a little bit more time. But uh, you know, what about KJ Jarrell and or Ty Thomas? I mean, those guys have been on Muscle Beach more than they've been in practices over the last couple of years. Um, so, is there going to be some dead loss on the roster at this at this yeah. position group, um, or are some of these guys going to step up? Uh, what I do think is important to note is that the, the coaching staff, they're starting to populate their defensive backfield with, with some athletes, and uh, that, that should really start to reflect in the summer when you get Jordan Clark, the Markham Twins. Mm-hmm. Um, who am I forgetting? Somebody. Willie Hartz. Willie Hartz. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm my, my key or, or the thing that I'll be watching for in the spring is also, as Mason said, to Marcus Davis and what we see from him in terms of who can he challenge uh, for time and just make it difficult. And as Chris said, a lot of these players have had a couple years now when they've either been on Muscle Beach or just not producing to the level that coaches and I think even the players are expecting. So I think it's, as Chris said, it's going to be important for this group. Tamarcus Davis is going to push Chase Lucas. I'm just, just mark it down right now. Coaches, mark it. 
coaches were were you know they they last season were giving Taron Adams a lot of reps early in the year because of that and um, I, Chase Lucas has you know plenty of talent he could be a first or second day NFL pick if it all comes together for him but Tamarcus Davis um, at Baylor some pretty impressive film together for somebody who was just a freshman and the guy's a quick twitch athlete. Uh, that's going to be interesting. So that was just a surface level kind of breakdown of position by position of this ASU football team. We're going to have a much more comprehensive breakdown of each of these positions on our premium podcast with analysis from Chris. So be sure to check that out. That will be out on Thursday, January 31st after media day. Uh, but that's going to do it for this edition. Of Go the subscribe. Get on the Devil's Sanctuary right now. Check it out. Boss man told you, so now you have to do it. Um, but that's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Alongside reporters Jack Harris, Max Madden, Mason Kern, and as always, site publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Rob Warner, saying so long, and thank you for tuning in. <laughs>